I don't moonlight as a rapper. My jersey up too high in the rafters. I got a frog team, new life and attractive. Still sipping that moonshine and a plastered. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Moonlighters Club. I'm with Chris Davis. Do you prefer Chris Christopher? Oh, Chris. Christopher is way too many syllables. So. Okay, Chris. <laughs> Chris. All right. Uh, no, nah, keep it simple. All right, we'll keep it simple. Uh, Chris and I met a while back at an event at Bow Market. Uh, it's a place in Somerville, Massachusetts. Really neat. Uh, Hub Week put it together. Yep. And uh, Hub Week's a company that basically just like throws a bunch of cool festivals and meetups, yeah, was I feel a- like. Great event. Basically, you know, all different kinds of entrepreneurs, all walks of life, just kind of there in this bar. And it was a good venue, good beer. There was free beer, which is often the best kind. And plus, <laughs> yeah, free beer. yeah, no, I got to meet up with Joel here and, you know, just talk, you know, just talk about business and things like that. And we eventually linked up and yeah, here I am. So, yeah. So, Chris, when you first started talking to me, you went to MIT. Yep. And so you started talking. My head almost exploded, only because you ran to another person who went to MIT. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, all right, I don't know what's happening. Let me just back up and reassess. So I'll start here. Where, where'd you grow up originally? Uh, yeah, where'd you grow up originally? Before you came to Boston, where were you at? So this is a story in of itself. So originally, I was born in uh, Northern Virginia. The, the DMV area is what they call it. And uh, yeah, I lived there. It was a great time. I did, you know, first part of elementary school there. Actually, all of elementary school. And I was there up until I was like maybe, what, 12? But my father joined the military shortly after 9-11. So at that point, we started moving around a lot because that's a lot of, you know, what military brats do is move from point A to point B, you know, following their dad's jobs. And so from there, I lived in Southern California in the Mojave Desert for like another three years after that. And then after that, I lived in Germany, spent the first, you know, basically chunk of high school at an American school in Germany. And then again, moved down to South Carolina where I finished high school and then eventually went up to MIT. So it's not a linear story, but yeah, when people ask where I'm from, I generally just keep it simple. I say I'm from Northern Virginia because culturally American from Virginia, I identify with that. So So what's MIT actually like? Like I've been there for school trips. I've never like Boston's the school. It's the city of schools, right? So you like you have this idea of Harvard, you have this idea of BU, whatever the school is, they have their own identity. MIT has the identity of just being ridiculously over-the-top genius. Oh, I mean, so, yeah, so like anything else, right, when it comes to an institution and experience, right, uh, different strokes, different folks, right, you know, it's going to depend mostly on who you're talking to. So I can only give you my opinion. I'm not speaking for everyone, but uh, it was great. I really liked it there. I mean, one thing I found is like, you know, sure, there's a certain baseline of, you know, technical competence with people at MIT, right? But in general, I find that the biggest factor that when it comes to people that I've met there is they're very passionate about something, you know. Some people want to be the best physicist ever. Other people want to, you know, advance the state of the art when it comes to medicine. Other people want to do things like music, you know, poetry, writing, things like that. We actually do have a lot of those guys, you know, kicking around, which is really cool. But, you know, the entire experience just in general, I went there from 2010 to 2014. And so I'm about five years out. I actually had my five-year reunion a couple months ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, you will learn, you will learn a lot and you're going to fail a lot like anything else in life. Right. And this isn't anything that's just like exclusive to MIT. Right. I mean, you know, you're on your own for the first time, you know, for for many people, you know, this is the first time they've ever had this kind of freedom. Right. And you're taking all these risks. You're learning a lot of stuff at once. A lot of things just kind of pounding you. Right. And uh, I like to think of it as a pressure cooker, you know, like, you know, 
if you take it for what it is and embrace the experience, you come out at the other end, you know, way stronger than you started. That's given that, you know, you adhere to, you know, a good, healthy lifestyle, keep everything in perspective, keep all your successes and failures, keep your head on straight. I find that many people end up, you know, way better off. But that's just in my opinion, right? So. Is it when it comes to socializing, is it any different from any other college campus? Did you find it fairly oh, I easy? I mean, you know, every college has a different kind of vibe that goes right. on, right? And, you know, because MIT student body is on the magnitude of, you know, I think it's like, what, a thousand at least, you know, there is there is a 99% chance that there is some group or, you know, some subset of people that you identify with really well that will be your friends in a way. So I was in a, I was in a living group, a fraternity at MIT, and it was a bunch of men of color who were basically, you know, really, really cool guys. Like, you know, they were top-notch engineers, yeah. you know, great computer scientists, you know, we, you know, chill. We did a lot of the same things together. They were really, really good guys. And so that was the group that I identified with through, you know, most of my time at MIT. But again, depending on who you are, you know, you'll be able to find who you like, you know, like a lot of my friends, they were into, you know, combat sports, like, you know, Taekwondo, you know, jujitsu, karate, things like that. There's a group for that. You know, if you're into, you know, watching, you know, TV and Netflix and anime, you know, oh, turns out, yeah, there's tons of people who are into that. It's MIT, right? So... But nice. uh, yeah, like, no, the socializing aspect, it's like anything else. It is what you make of it. I found it to be a lot of fun. And keep in mind, too, like, you know, you're not just limited to MIT. You're in Boston. Like, you could literally go down the street and there's like 10 different colleges, right? Yeah. So chances are you're going to find some someone else to, you know, do whatever it is you want to do, whether it's, you know, friends, romantically. No, you'll you'll be able to find it if you look hard enough, right? You know, yeah. it's not going to just come and jump out at you. And that's part of, you know, the challenging part about, you know, just being on your own. You know, now you're making these decisions that have their own weight, their own consequences. And uh, yeah, no, you just kind of have to, you know, go out there, make mistakes. You're going to flounder for a little bit, but no one bats a thousand in this life, right? So so what was your degree in? So my degree was originally in chemical engineering. It was it was chemical and biological engineering. Basically, it's, <laughs> it's glorified plumbing. So um, what it is is, you know, chemical engineering originally started out as, you know, basically a subset of, you know, the mechanical engineering, but there was a very, very high... There's a very high, uh, what do you call it, emphasis on, you know, thermodynamics, uh, piping, plumbing, uh, basically trying to get, you know, large, large amounts of chemicals from point A to point B, do reactions and, you know, transport them safely and yeah. get rid of the waste products. And that was a ton of fun. You, you start to find out that, like, you know, what you think you want to do at the start of college and then what you eventually end up doing. Uh, you know, there's some intersection, but you're attracted to it for reasons that completely were not what you originally expecting. Like, I liked chemistry, so therefore I chose chemical engineering. It turns out not that much chemistry involved, actually. It's a lot of thermo, you know, a lot of thermo and plumbing, yeah. a lot of mechanics involved. And so, you know, I eventually really liked chemical engineering, but it wasn't because of the chemistry part, <laughs> which, you know, looking back on, I'm just kind of like, whoa, you know, like I could have been so many other things. But, you know, I'm happy I did what I did. Uh, chemical engineering is a lot of fun. I don't use it so much on a daily basis, but the nice part about engineering is, you know, you know, the different subsets we might call, you know, we're all studying the same system, right? You know, which is the natural world, you know, phenomena that occurs in, you know, real life. And we might call it slightly different things. And we might, you know, use slightly different terminology. But for the same part, you know, if you're looking at a natural system, you know, the same stuff's happening, you know, you just call it slightly different things. So if you're good at thermo and like, you know, chemical engineering, chances are for mechanical engineering, you know, you go over very, very similar stuff. Now you're talking about, you know, thermofluids and thermodynamics. And that's a little bit more of what I'm into nowadays is, you know, you know, mechanical stuff. So 
That was the smartest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, I just wanted my head to not explode while I was listening to you break that down. But I like the the, the emphasis, though, is the fact that I mean, it's learning like, something in it, learning something being applied, right? And then applying it when you get out of school, it's two different worlds, and regardless oh, of what you go to school for. Like, I could go to school for management, you know what I mean? And or uh, specifically management, yeah. you go you can go to school for, but that doesn't mean anything. It's too broad. It could be you managing projects, yeah. it could be you managing people, you could be in HR. So I think it's interesting, no matter what the trade is, you literally have to learn how you're gonna apply this. And then what about the learning you like the most as opposed to just the title? And you know, it's not uncommon. Like, you know, there are many people who go into you know, engineering type fields and they end up doing, you know, management consulting or, you know, they end up going into finance or something like that. All these skills are very plastic, right? You can sort of, you know, take them and manipulate them, do whatever you want with them at the end of the day, because really, you know, it's neither here nor there, whether, you know, I'm, I care about, you know, a pipe fitting or, you know, this block of material that I'm shaving down, trying to make a specific part or, you know, stock prices you know it's all about the problem solving process and that's one of the most important things to take away from it you know like the, the terminology and the things that you learn the specific things chances are you're going to be able to look those up in a book at the end of the day right but it's being able to you know ask the right kinds of questions to the right people and do it in a way that ultimately gets you at a final product that's good yeah. right so so when you get out of school and you uh, uh when you first started working were you Happy about the industry you were in? Happy about the work you were doing when you first came out? Let's say like I was, months in. I was extremely happy about it. So originally after graduating, I went back to work for MIT. And um, what I was doing is I was working at a small uh, lab at MIT. They okay. do a lot of uh, medical devices, medical device uh, manufacturing. So I was working on small implantable devices to basically figure out whether, oh, okay, you know, uh, a cancerous tumor that you have has a certain you know, composition, what kind of drugs it's going to react to. Yeah. And... Um, I loved it just because, uh, for one, it was a very academically focused job. So, like, you know, the uh, the dimensions of the job that you take, they vary a lot with the industry that you're in. Right? It's like if you're in finance, you know, you're expected to be, you know, at work at a certain time, leave at a certain time. Or if you're in like, you know, yeah. you know, chemical process industry, you know, that's shift work. You better be at work at a certain time at another time. But for academically oriented stuff, you know, I was working under a postdoc, someone who had a PhD and was basically looking to, you know, do... Uh, you know, more academia stuff, whether it be, you know, become a professor or an adjunct or something like that. And, uh, you know, the hours were very lax, which was really cool for, you know, coming out of school. Like, you know, I was expected to be, you know, <laughs> I was expecting, you know, be up at a certain time, leave at a certain time. But it's like, no, as long as you get your work done, you can go. And I'm a late owl. So like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with, you know, coming into work at noon and leaving at eight. But uh, nice. yeah, no, that's just about the hours. So, you know, it was a really cool atmosphere. And uh, I was happy about the work I was doing. I mean, I was doing cancer research, which, you know, it's mission driven, right? You're helping a ton of people. It's it's a technically non-obvious. You know, you learn a lot of stuff yeah. from people who are really, really good. And it's uh, just, it's non-trivial, you know, trivial, you know, you're making yeah. things that, you know, go into people and they have to interact in a very specific way and you have to get data out and then, you know, process it. And there's a lot of different pieces, a lot of different experts that you kind of have to call in to make sure that, you know, things are working correctly. And, uh, you know, it was just the fact that, you know, wow, you know, what I went to school to learn, how it's being applied in a way that, you know, is really doing a lot of good. I might not see the results of it until 10 years from now, but, you know, it's those gradual steps, you know, Rome was not built in a day. And so, you know, I mean, after graduating, doing that, I mean, I loved it. In fact, for a while, I thought it was, that was going to be the industry that I was in just yeah. because, uh. You know, I fell in love with it so much. But uh, after a while, I was like, hey, you know, 
originally I graduated in, you know, chemistry, chemical not engineering, chemistry and chemical engineering, not the same things. Um, but after a while, I was doing a lot more stuff that was, you know, mechanically oriented. Like, you know, they actually had me fabricating and designing things. They taught me how to run a lathe and how to, you know, use hand tools. And, you know, I love that part of it so much because I never thought that I would like it. But it turns out I really liked working with my hands a lot. And, you know, when you're doing that kind of work, you know, it's a great synthesis of, you know, not only, you know, designing things, you know, mental work, but also, you know, actually employing that, putting that into practice. And that part I just fell in love with. So after I left that job about a year later, I actually went to work for a smaller design firm, which that was literally all they do. Uh, people would come to them with ideas for inventions or devices, uh, large companies, small companies, whatever it is. And we would build them. We would prototype them. And part of what part of what I was doing on the day to day basis was basically making the tools that the actual chemists would use in validating their, uh, you know, their products. So mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, we need this jig to, you know, go into this oven and withstand temperatures of, you know, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. It probably needs to be made of something sturdy. So don't make it out of plastic. Like, oh, OK, cool. This is tough work. But, you know, you get to see, you know, you get very instant feedback, you know, when things work like, right. oh, shoot, you know, my part exploded. Chances are it's not going to work too well. Right. And uh, that was awesome. That was where I started to learn a lot more uh, electronics, you right. know, how to actually build things that, you know, work and function. So, so how long were you there? So I was there for another year after that. Actually. Another year so. after that. So when did the wheel start turning as for you, <laughs> for when you said, okay, maybe I can do something like this so, separate? So I'm going to have to take a step back because this is all happening in parallel. And so, you know, while I was working my nine to fives there, and actually even for a little chunk of time while I was in school, it was me and another colleague of mine. He was a mechanical engineer, really brilliant guy. And uh, we eventually, we were in the last semester of our year at MIT, I mean, of, our, of our time at MIT. So we were thinking about what we were going to do. And he asked me like, hey, Chris, what are you going to do? And at that point, I was just kind of mulling around the options. I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm studying chemical engineering. I'm probably going to either go into oil field stuff or completely take a left turn, you know, work in like consumer products, like, oh, work on 3D printing and plastics and things like that. And he told me, well, Chris, you know, I also want to do things with 3D printing. And I had this idea for, you know, a concept that uh, I think we should build. But I'm not great at chemistry, but you are. So you know what you have to be like, you know, I'm not great at anything. I just kind of know who to ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why don't we just work on this product? So, you know, while we were basically, you know, finishing up at MIT, we were developing this a 3D printing crayon for kids. And it was cool. So like it would basically be this jar of material. I wish I brought it that you'd pour out onto a desk and you'd be able to basically make these sculptures in real time. And uh, it was just our foray into like, you know, product design. It was my first time actually building something that would be used by, uh, you know, a kid, which is, you know, it turns out they're very tough to design for. They love to break things. Yeah. And so one of our lab managers, he was very generous. He gave us like, oh, here's some lab space, you know, in the basement of the chemical engineering building where I studied. Uh, here's, you know, where you want to go. If you want materials, don't blow anything up. Uh, you have free reign. Uh, do what you have to do. And uh, tell me what you made at the end. That was his biggest thing. Like, just tell us what you did. And so, yeah, we got to work. And that was probably some of the most fun times of my life. Like, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd finish my courses in the afternoon. And then at night, I'd basically work and, uh, you know, help make this you know, chemical composition that was going to go into this product that we were making. And so yeah, that went on for a couple of years and it went on for a half a year after I graduated. We were really lucky with that hookup. And so we effectively 
got to the point where we had a finished prototype. We were testing it over at the uh, MIT Museum and we were doing all kinds of cool stuff with it. And we eventually just, you know, pitched it to uh, a big toy company in the area. It's not too far from here. And uh, they gave us money for the concepts. And it wasn't a ton of money. It was on the magnitude of like, you know, maybe, you know, not enough to certainly, you know, pay rents for like, you know, months and months. Yeah. But it was on the magnitude, like, you know, mid thousands. But yeah, it's encouraging, an encouraging amount, though, you know, was, like, like, yeah, yeah, there may be some here. Well, right. Yeah. It's, it's nutty to me, like, you know, looking back on how much it was. I'm like, that's really not a lot of money, like, you know, absolute terms. But, you know, coming out of college where, you know, you're used to eating Hot Pockets and ramen every night. Right, right. right. It's like, oh, my God, I've never seen this many zeros in my life. You yeah. know? And it's ours. But we had jobs at that point. And so we were just like, hey, you know, we don't want to be just a toy company. You know, like we got to the part where all the fun stuff was pretty much over by that point. Right. Like we did all the design sketches. We yeah. did the design for manufacturing, we knew how we were going to make it. Now at this point, it was, you know, the more arduous things like, you know, okay, marketing and, you know, oh, now we have to pitch to, you know, different sellers, you know, basically sell these products to people. And we said, hey, you know, we don't want to be just a toy company. You know, we, we came to that point in the road where we were like, okay, if we're going to get serious about this, we really, really need to like, you know, buckle down because it's going to get tough ahead. You know, there's going to be stuff we don't want to do and it's going to be primarily what we don't want to do. And we said, oh, well, we have this money. We don't need it right now. And we were actually both doing a little bit of freelance engineering on the side regardless. And so we took that money. We didn't spend any of it on ourselves, but instead we just, you know, bought hand tools and stuff. Like we bought like, you know, a 3D printer. We bought basically, you know, the things that you needed to, you know, start a product design firm. And at this point we're talking about maybe early 2016 is when this happens, you know? So this is right when I was starting my other job. Mm -hmm. Uh, over at the uh, design firm in Cambridge. And so we said, oh, you know, uh, let's just buy all these tools and let's just, you know, build things for other people. Because we came to the conclusion that while we were making this toy, we were not only lucky, but we were, you know, quite frankly, blessed in that uh, we had, if we ever had a question about not only, you know, just technical stuff, but, you know, business stuff, managerial things, you know, who to talk to, even connections, you know, they got us the connection with the toy company. Uh, we wouldn't, we would literally just be able to send an email to. No, that's all right, man. It happens. Let me just chuck it into the ocean here. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so oh, where was I? But if we had any questions about, you know, anything, you know, management related or, you know, technical, we would be able to just shoot an email to, you know, one of our professors or, you know, one of our colleagues and they'd be able to get us, you know, very quickly a really good answer. And so when it comes to like, you know, inventing things, we were really lucky. We had a super advantage over a lot of other people who wanted to do the same thing. And we found out that like, wow, you know, not everyone has these, these, you know, massive resources behind them. And when it comes to, you know, something that's not only, you know, non-obvious, like, you know, pushing a product out to market, but also technically tough, like, you know, inventing things like, yeah. you know, putting nuts and screws and bolts together, you know, make a functional thing that won't just fall apart. Uh, there's a lot of not only a lack of information, but a lot of bad information right. out there. Yeah. And so there was a there was a really big market opportunity for us to basically say, hey, you know what? We've done this before and we were fairly successful at it. We made an exit, you know, if you can call it consider, you know, <laughs> you know, making your money back. It's an exit. exit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, a modest exit. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, no, we were able to basically, you know, help you with your problems and do the same thing because we love the process of just like, you know, designing things, building things, bringing it to market and, you know, ultimately, you know, making something that didn't exist, exist, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, man. So we said, okay, let's just uh, do this for other people. Let's just start inventing things. And that's, you know, what started a very long nonlinear process to basically, you know, where I am today, you know, in a nutshell. So So how do you, how'd you get your first couple of prospective clients that you were so, going to build prototypes for? So our first couple of prospective clients, you know, for a service industry like ours, that's always going to be the million dollar question, right? It's a very closed market where not only do you not know the people who have the problems that, that want to pay you, right? But yeah. the people who have the problems don't know who you are. And, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Uh, we originally just found people online and you have all kinds of different platforms you can use, yeah. you know, such as Upwork. Uh, we also we also started with something like Guru, and really we had jobs at that point, so we weren't looking to make you know a super killing. Our overhead was effectively you know not zero, but very very close to it. Right? Yeah, and so we were just like, oh, you know, this will be something we do as a hobby for fun, you know. And uh, if you can get those first couple clients and do a really really good job, that's excellent. That speaks volumes about not only your work but also your perspective, uh, you know, your future as a business because. Uh, we have a set of uh, basically mentors over at MIT who are really, really good. They've been in the industry for like, you know, tens of years. And one thing that they always tell us is, you know, the best client is the one that you are. I mean, the best prospective customer is the one you already have. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds yeah. which sounds kind of circular, right? Like, OK, how do you get those customers? Well, OK, you just have to kind of grind and, you know, find those first couple guys on Upwork or, you know, Craigslist or wherever it may be. But um, afterwards, you know. A positive testimonial was worth its weight in gold, right? Nice. Like if you can have people that, you know, can point to you and say, these guys are brilliant. They did an excellent job for me. And I would totally, you know, not only get them for another project, but recommend them to my friends. It turns out that, you know, things like entrepreneurship, they don't often exist in a vacuum. People who want to build things often have friends who also want to build things, right? So, I mean, even with all the technology that's out, social, with all the different ways of scaling, there's nothing really beats word of mouth. Oh, like agreed, you could see yeah. things a million times, like through whatever network you're at to. The second you're someone you trust says, "No, that one's good," mm-hmm. you're on it. So it's super crazy how that network effect really does kick in. Oh, for sure. And uh, yeah, just to bring the point home a little bit more, uh, you know, trust the process. It takes a very, very, it can it can be very slow and laborious. Like uh, one of our one of our mentors says that like. Look, you're going to be doing you're going to, you're going to be basically grinding for clients for years until you know you eventually have enough, you know, inertia behind you where you know you don't have to make any more cold calls, you know, just you know solicit people. And uh, you know, it takes a long time, but you can't cheat the process really, you know, because it's one of those things where like, oh, okay, you know, I can just, you know, go online and do x y and z, you know, forever, you know, find these super low-hanging fruit clients, but the problem with that is you know, the lower the bar to entry is, the more competition. You yes. Have. And, you know, unless you're extremely stand out, which you can be, you know, that's another way to, you know, basically get on top. It's very tough to do when you're, it's very tough to do when you're starting out, though. That's what people need to realize is that you can't, it, no one, it's the work. I feel like all adventures we're trying to make, we're trying to get past the work. You're trying to bypass the work. Like, I, I started out with a, a fitness app. Yeah. And... Doing this on podcast, I'm like, oh, that's gonna be it's a cinch. I don't have to build an app, right? I'm gonna do this and whatever. But no, there's work involved. I gotta reach out. I yeah. go to events. I have to put on my own events. I have to have money for equipment and things of that nature. It's, it's still a grind. Like you can't escape it. And for sure, yeah, like it's 
And, you know, it's arduous. Like, you know, when it comes to things like sales and you're going out talking to people, I mean, I don't hate it, but I'd much rather be in the shop building things. Right? Doing your thing. And, you know, you can't cheat the process. I feel like, you know, nowadays, you know, there's a very, very strong push. And this is just my opinion. It could be 100% bunk. You know, take it for what it is, a grain of salt. But um, there is a very, very strong propensity to optimize for things. But you got to be really careful to not let that basically be uh, laziness in disguise. Yes. You know, there's no way to yes. basically, you know, get around the work of, you know, finding clients, you know, pitching it to people, you know, getting in front of people and, you know, very so often, you know, getting rejected, you know, right. No, right. One, no one bats a thousand. How hard is it to not be how there are times you have to be confrontational, like, but like in a productive way mm -hmm. with clients you work with, you're building prototypes. Oh. Did you find it hard or was it like, did you have to work into where you have to tell someone, look, man, what you want is insane. Or what you're trying to do here is crazy. Was that a practice that you had to learn how to do? Did it come natural? Or like explain that to me. Because I feel like if I were to do that and someone was maybe because I'm I find myself in the entrepreneurial space, mm -hmm. you know, myself, and I, it'd be super hard for me to look someone in the face and go, this is really stupid. Like you shouldn't do this, you know? Yeah, I mean, so we've we've turned down our fair number of clients, right? Just because, um, you know, they've had us wanting to build things that either weren't physically possible. Like, oh, I want you to build a time machine. Like, oh, okay. With 2019 technology, it's not really possible <laughs> to build for one. Or, um, you know, things that basically lie to people. Like, oh, okay, I want you to build this thing that does X, Y, and Z to water. And we can pitch it as like, you know, this health product. Like, no, that's, we want to build things that are, you know, physically possible, useful, and they have some kind of, you know, greater good, you know, benefit society in some way. And that's one of the reasons why we actually got into, you know, hardware, you know, things that can physically be put together and built and things like that. Because it turns out, you know, there's a lot of people who are really, really good at software, but a lot of the uh, apps and stuff that are out there, you know, the lifestyle apps, you know, like, oh, okay, I can, you know, send tweets to people on my phone while texting yo or something like that. I'm super trivializing it, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, we wanted to build things that, you know, had real utility in the world. And, uh, you know, we've, we've straight up turned down people for that. But, you know, this, this question has multiple points because there's also the clients that also have, you know, ideas for prototypes that, quite frankly, for an initial prototype, for an initial prototype have way too many features. Like, we're a really big fan of, you know, operating very lean, especially yep. when it comes to hardware prototypes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the concept of the minimal viable product, right? Yeah. You know, having the very, very minimal products with maybe one or two features that work really well that demonstrate the market viability. Uh, you can't do that if you have, you know, something with bells and whistles and things like that, because it gets really tough to engineer and you introduce points of failure. And um, most damaging of all is you uh, sort of obfuscate, right? The, uh, you sort of obfuscate, you know, the point that your product is trying to come across. You know, if you're if your widget has all the bells and whistles in the world, which of those bells and whistles is the crux of your product? It gets tougher with more features, right? And um, we find that a lot of what we end up doing is tempering expectations, right? Yeah. And so if someone wants a prototype, if someone wants a prototype of a widget built that has five features, we want to try to push that down to one or two, right? Yeah. But one or two really good refined features, you know? We find that, you know, a lot of the features that come across our desk you know, they're kind of half-baked. Like, oh, okay, like, you know, I want it to also have a GPS. Well, why? Why? Like, it adds, like, you know, so much to the cost. You're paying for it, for one. And two, what does this have to do with the initial problem that your thing is trying to solve, right? If, yeah. you're, if your hardware product or, you know, if any, you know, 
if any business idea or you know software product, you know what have you, if it doesn't ultimately solve some kind of problem, you have a very big issue. And as so you're like a consultant. Too. I like the fact that you are consulting too, because there yeah. are so many people who will just take your money and go, "All right, I'll build this thing with eight features. It's going to cost you three hundred thousand dollars." So, but yeah, you'll get it. So we didn't learn this immediately because originally, you know, one of our hardest things, you know, it's very tough to say no to someone who's yeah. paying you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially when they say, "Oh, we want more features and we'll pay you more money." You know, like who doesn't want more money? But it turns out, you know, when things ultimately end up, you know, breaking or failing. They come back to you and say, hey, what gives? This didn't work. Like, uh, we should have done a better job of saying no. And that's that's one of the uh, tougher parts of the business is you're, you're occasionally going to get clients. And it's going to happen more often when you're starting out because you don't know what you're looking for. For service businesses, you're, get, you're, you're occasionally going to get clients that will cost you money in the long run, right? So, like, you know, someone who, you know, takes up a lot of your time, but the amount of money that they're paying you. Uh, oftentimes does not scale with the efforts. And yeah. uh, for that reason, there's there's certain ways you can get around it. Like, okay, if you bill on an hourly basis, okay, well, if you pour more time in, you know, you're always going to be making X amount of money. But for some industries, right, where, you know, you have a contract that's worth X amount, you have to be really, really sure that like, oh, okay, you know, you're only going to put in this much time because in this business, right, or in any business, any service business, uh, one of the best ways to go broke is to do work for free. Right? Yeah. And yeah. to do work for free consistently, you know? <laughs> and that's not to say that, you know, you're never, ever going to, you know, take an L on a client's or a project or things like that. Sometimes it's better to do the right thing and lose a little bit of money than, you know, be greedy and try to basically, you know, save that extra penny or two. Because, again, it kind of goes back to, you know, a service industry is all I and mean, a service business is all about the service, right? Yeah. So. So where, what are some milestones that you have, that are you have as a team that you could see yourself pushing for? Or what's the next big milestone for you from a company standpoint, let's say in for the sure. next year or so? So we have three primary ones. We talk about nice. this, me and my business partner. Nice. Uh, we talk about this very often and we revise it because it turns out, you know, <laughs> milestones, you're, you're predicting for the future, but especially when it comes to me and just people in general, right? You know, we're very poor at predicting the future. You know, things can happen that, are completely unrelated to you that can change your milestones and that's okay that's life right but you know there's a couple things so one is mission driven we ultimately want to uh, be the voice that people think of right in not only just the boston area but just generally when they have a hardware product or an invention that wants to be built okay here these guys are good they know what to do you're in good hands with them right yeah and, you know, maybe even spinning off, you know, certain, you know, sub companies where, you know, we specialize in certain kinds of products, you know, and uh, that's what we want to do on a mission perspective. But the best milestones are usually, you know, metric driven, right? Like, oh, yeah. OK, I want to be doing, you know, X amount in Y fashion. Right. And so the other one is revenue based. You know, we want to you know make a certain amount of money in the next five years or a certain amount of revenue in the next five years. I'm sorry. Not revenue, profits. There you go. Yeah, That's yeah, the important yeah. one because you can, <laughs> yeah. you can make a lot of revenue and not take any money home. Or you could, you know, you can make a million dollars, right? And then spend five million, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, there's some companies, some big companies that are great at that. They'll take other people's money and then, you know, oh, shoot, you know, we'll, we'll make money back eventually, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really scale a lot well for a lot of service businesses because, you know, <laughs> you need to keep the lights on in one way. And a lot of times right. they're not really... A lot of people won't invest in those because, oh, okay, you know, how do you scale it? You add more people, right? But, um, yeah, the other way that we wanted to basically, uh, you know, grow 
the business is in the next five years have a certain number of people working with us right now. Cool. So our team is relatively small. We have, you know, four people, including me and an intern. So, you know, we're basically we could fit inside this entire room and, uh, you know, we'd be out working, you know, building things, you know, design, things of that nature. Uh, one of our biggest things is, you know, basically not increase not only the breadth of our team. So have, you know, multiple, you know, mechanical guys working on a project, but also, I mean, not. I'm sorry, not the depth of our team, the breadth. Let me start over. Increase not only the depth of our team, right? So have multiple guys with, you know, one service, I mean, one specialty working on a thing, but also the breadth of our team. So like, yeah. oh, okay, hey, uh, you know, we want a guy who's really, really good at, you know, just like industrial design, making the things that we mm, look not okay. look so ugly, you know, yeah. for a first prototype. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have anyone that's really good at that right now. So. Yeah, you know, just increase, you know, the number of things that, you know, we could potentially work on. But uh, right now we have a fair amount of basically, uh, we have a fair amount of, uh, how would you say, versatility. In what okay. We do. So like, you know, we have, you know, we have, you know, mechanical guys. We also have people who are really good at, you know, electrical things and people who can make apps, you know, CS and, uh, you know, computer science yeah. and uh, things like that related guys. So. You know, we have a fair amount of versatility, but we understand that it could be even more. Exactly. So. And that all that'll just help you scale. Yeah. Having those people who can do those minute things so that one person's not working too hard in the business, but yeah. on the business, this is the way to go. And that's one of the toughest parts for me, you know, quite frankly, because I love just getting in the shop and building things, but right. you know, handing things off to other people. And it's a lot hard. of it's you know, granted, I'm willing to say for me, a lot of it is ego driven. Like I know yeah. that like, okay, if I worked on this for X amount of time, then I know that it would be pretty good. But you know, handing it off to someone else. Uh, you know, that requires a certain level of trust, yeah. but also just a, a certain level of just like, you know, hands off. But it's it's one of the worst behaviors that you can get into, especially, you know, after you reach a certain scale, because, you know, there's only one of you and the amount of work that you could scale up to, yeah. you know, is potentially unlimited. And that's a good thing for a service industry, right? Because if you're if you're billing out, say, you know, 100 hours, right? So if there's only one of you, you can only work 24 hours a day, right? Yeah. And so... Even if you were working every second of every second of every day, you know, there's only a certain amount of time that right. you can put into something. But if you have multiple people working on it, well, now it's potentially unlimited, right? It scales with the number of people. So, yeah, that's one way to think of it. And yeah. two, it's just like, hey, you know, uh, part of, you know, part of, you know, growing a company from something that's really small to something that's larger implies that like, okay, you're going to have to, you know, delegate other people to get x y and z done yeah. while you can work on the really important stuff right exactly so well hopefully you get to hit those milestones to everyone watching how can where can we find you if you're looking to build a prototype how do we get in contact with you yes yeah, so we have a website we actually just revised it it's a www.gen1.tech that's g-e-n-o-n-e.t-e-c-h and i have an email address it's uh, chris at gen1.tech and uh, yeah, no, we love having company. We love talking to people. Nice. Uh, if I'm not able to give you my advice, I'm certainly able to give you my opinion, right? So <laughs> nice. Well, we appreciate you stopping by. Yeah. We definitely got to, if we get some time, check out that office. Yeah. So those out, if you need something built, this is the person who can build it for you. So uh, Chris, thank you. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Hope to run into you soon in the near future. Oh, man, I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> oh, and we thank everyone who joined us again for another episode of the Moonlighters Club. And we'll have more coming your way. Thank you. Yeah.